Plot twists. We are obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story that takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, super fan of cinema, sport, comedy, and I'm part of the odd impression. And throughout this series, brought to you by Now and Sky, I'll be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about the plot twist moments that define their lives and careers. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems you've never heard before. Expect spoilers. Hey folks, I am very, very excited for my guest this week and honoured, truly honoured. He is one of Britain's best loved comedians, Bill Bailey. A lot of you listening will know him for massive nationwide and international tours. I'm thinking uh, Tinsel Worm, Quan Peddler, Limbo Land. And even more of you will have seen Bill on QI and Nevermind the Buzzcocks. I say all of this, but his talents go well beyond making people laugh. He is an exceptionally talented musician, a talent that he's used so uniquely on his stand-up sets. He has wowed and surprised many with his dancing skills when he won Strictly Come Dancing. And not to mention, he's an actor as well. I'm thinking like in the long run with Idris Elba. He's also a presenter too. Master Crafters on Sky Arts he's presented, which spotlights the amazing work of expert craft professionals across Britain and follows junior crafters as they look to refine their skills. If you're into creativity and you like heritage crafts like wood carving and stained glass and silversmithing, it's on Sky and, and now ready to stream. So go and check that out. But back to the comedy. He has a new tour, Thought of Fire. And he's currently in Australia and New Zealand, but he will be back in the UK next year. And if there are tickets available, they are still out there. Go and get them quickly because they will be sold out very, very soon. To be honest, there were quite a few things with Bill I wanted to talk about. He was he was friends with Sean Locke and I'm going to put it out there now. He did not disappoint with the story. It was absolutely amazing. I want to talk to him about obviously the new tour, but actually the inspirations behind the material. It is, as I said earlier, quite unique. I've got to talk about some of his passions and I should probably, I should throw in a plot twist question somewhere. So here it is, Bill Bailey, the brilliant Bill Bailey on Plot Twist. Uh, we had a bit of a celebration yesterday, so, so I'm, I'm suffering today. Oh, we really? Okay. A, a lunch, <laughs> which turned into something else. Well, it happens. You know, this, you know what? It was an unexpected um, ding-dong. <laughs> well, you've got the new tour coming up, so you've got a reason to celebrate, right? Well, exactly, yes. It was actually a project that had come to fruition, and we were having a sort of, you know, a celebratory uh, lunch. And it, it went on a bit. That's what, it just, I'm, that's what I'm going to say. But... Um, <laughs> If, <laughs> I'm I'm slightly suffering a bit today. I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. You know, uh, it's fine. I'll go gentle. It's yeah, fine. We can thanks. we can work through this together. Great. Yeah. Um, do you know? Actually, it's funny. I've got some friends I'm seeing at the weekend, and they text me this morning, and they've just come back from Willowcombe Bay. Oh right. And just from reading about yourself, I understand that's that's a place in North Devon that's quite close to your heart. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Willowcombe is a, is a beautiful beach miles of sand and kind of carries on into the surf and it sort of slopes very shallow shallowly shallow shallowly out into the sea so it's perfect if you're learning to surf which i've been trying to for many years and uh it wins kind of best beach in britain regularly and 
There's some beautiful I'm, sand dunes at the back of it that you can surf down on boogie boards, which we've done many, many years uh, over the many years. Yeah, and it's and it's one of those places that uh, I, I took. You know, we took our own son when he was a little kid, and spent many times, happy times there, summer holidays there, and, and then of course I discovered that. My mum and dad took me there when I was a kid. So I found these mm. photographs when my dad was, you know, clearing out some old photographs and going through some old albums. And he found this picture of me on the beach, you know, as a kid in the very places that we'd been going for many years. So it sort of feels like it's, you know, a bit of full circle and a bit of like, yeah, I've yeah. got some kind of connection with the place which is more than just oh this is a nice beach I feel like this is part of my childhood as well did they dress you in a bow tie have I got that correct your parents yes my mum did yeah. yeah I don't know why <laughs> I still don't know why she thought that that was appropriate beach attire yeah um okay yeah swimming trunks towel bow tie <laughs> shirt as you do bow tie I don't know that was it like was she thinking? I always, I always, it always really, really puzzled me that, you know, like keeping up appearances. Was it that you know we can't have you not looking smart, even though you're digging a sandcastle? You've got to look like you're about to attend a wedding or something. Or what did you think that like local dignitaries might suddenly appear and you better be smart in case the mayor is there? Or I don't know. It just was so odd. But of course, what that's left with me, with me, with these fantastic photographs of me, was sort oh, of yeah. mop bowl haircut and a <laughs> V-neck sweater with a, boat, <laughs> a spade and a bucket in my hand. So I don't know. It was um, one of those parental quirks. <laughs> now I've got to ask you some plot twist questions. I mean, that is the nature of, of the podcast. We've got to talk about the new tour, Thought of Fire, but also. I've got a few random questions. Oh, yeah. I, I guess actually it's probably me being a little bit nosy. Go on. But, um, but let's try. Let's see how we go. So my girlfriend recently has expressed a desire to go paddle boarding. Yes. Which I understand is something you'd like to do. It but is. If you could recommend one place to do it, where, where do you think we should do it? Where, where should we go? Well, if you're starting out... Uh, which it sounds like oh, you're, yes. you're, you're, you're oh, yeah. beginners. So <laughs> you're <much> okay. So. <laughs> right. Then what you want is some nice calm water. It's preferably a lake, I would suggest. Mm. And uh, and we have a district of lakes. If you want to, you know, I think you can paddleboard on quite a few of the lakes in the Lake District. That might be enough. And it's also a beautiful be place beautiful. to go. So it's a win-win. Um, yeah. But if you if that's not an option then there's you know there's the canal uh, but then but they, you know they, they're not quite so um sanitary um <laughs> if you fall in <laughs> so i mean not i wouldn't i have i've paddled quite a lot on canals and they're great and it means that you know you don't have to go you, you know when you get to a lock you just get the paddleboard get out walk around jump in and off you go again so yeah i would say also go so like a nice like Coombe Martin is quite a nice place to go. That's near Woolacombe Bay. And um, there's quite a sheltered bay there. And you can go in off the beach and you can sort of paddle around the rocks and around the little rock pools. And it's quite sort of, it's it's sheltered just by the sort of natural geography of the place, That the way that the inlet is protected on, on mm. several sides. That's my big tip, I would say. Somewhere calm. Calm waters. Well, I appreciate it. What you don't want is 
big choppy waves <laughs> and the, the river thames i go on the river thames but it's it's quite tricky because oh, wow. there's lots of boat traffic and you get a lot of wash so you have to yeah, be quite yeah. confident and quite well balanced uh well not well ba- as in you know as a person <laughs> you have to be well balanced uh but you have to be uh, your balance has to be right before you do that um, you see that's why i think i might be lacking you know, I need that protection. I think you know, if you yeah. imagine a giant albatross on stilts, I think that's what we're ha- that's what we're working with here. So I see. Need a bit right. of time yeah. to you know bed bed it in. Yeah, yeah. Start <laughs> kneeling down. That's the that's the key. <laughs> I asked a friend what he'd ask you, and he said exactly the same thing when I said the same for Jimmy Carr, who we had on a couple of years ago, and he was wondered if there was a favourite story around Sean Locke, the funniest moment or a particular memory that stands out. Um. Yeah, I mean, I was talking about this the other day and um, I was helping Sean move in to a flat in North London and uh, he was, uh, you know, moving some stuff in and I said, oh, I'll help out and I rented a Luton van and um, had an old wardrobe that my grandparents had given me and uh, it was it was too big for our flat and um, I didn't know what to do with it. And I said to Sean, well, I've got this old wardrobe. And he said, oh, well, I'll have it. I'll put it in my new flat. I said, all right, I've got a wardrobe there. So, all right, okay. So we got the van, came to my, my flat, put the wardrobe in it and took it into his flat. And we couldn't get it up the stairs. It just wouldn't go around the last bit of the, of the stairwell. So we were kind of... Uh, you know, so we just sort of left it there and did all the other moving. At the end of the day, we thought, what are we going to do with this wardrobe? And so we were sort of saying, well, we'll just kind of leave it somewhere, <laughs> you know, sort of tip it, fly tip it. And we went, no, can't do that. Let's have a bit of fun with it. So Sean said, why don't we take it round to someone's house and tell them that we've, this is the wardrobe that they've ordered and see what happens, you know. <laughs> and so we went round to this comedian, Simon Godley, uh, who lived not, not far away. And uh, we, we just rang his bed. It was quite late. I mean, it was... <laughs> You know, it's like sort of about half eleven at night, and we rang the bell. And he, yes, uh, it's Bill and Sean. Uh, we got the wardrobe you ordered, and he he sort of went, oh, uh, uh, okay. And he came down, and we were just standing there, deadpan, like you, you know, you said you wanted this wardrobe, and he was like, oh, and he could tell he's just thinking, did I, did I order? The, you know, <laughs> have I, you know, like there's when we got the wardrobe out the van, we put it outside his flat, and he was like, oh. Um, oh, I don't know. And then he could, we couldn't keep it up. We went, nah, we're only joking. And he went, oh, no, that is very funny. And so then we said, well, what are we going to do now? And so, sure, we'll take it around someone else's house. And so we got the wardrobe <laughs> and put it in the van. And Simon came, got in the van with us, and we drove around to Mark Lamar's house. And uh, and <laughs> so Mark, unbeknownst to us, had had a bit of a rough time. Someone had been leaving nasty messages on his phone and... He was a bit paranoid and it was when he was on the, you know, he was on the word and he was doing all kinds of things and he was very, very visible. And so, you know, he was, he was paranoid that somebody was outside his house. And then, and then, of course there was, there was me and Sean and this guy, Simon, in a Luton van with the engine running with the lights off, like outside his house. And he was, he was going, oh, he, you know, Mark was thinking. So he came down, we rang the bell and he came down and he went, oh, I've just had a terrible time. I've had people leaving, like picking up the phone and leaving dodgy messages. And the whole time he was telling this, Simon was in the wardrobe, right? We put the wardrobe outside his flat and Simon had got in it and he was just going to jump out. 
But after this tale of Mark saying, oh, I've had a terrible time of it, I'm very paranoid, Simon didn't feel like it was appropriate to go, <laughs> you know, terrify <laughs> me more. So anyway, he just opened the door and went, oh, hi, Mark, Simon. You know, I was going to jump out, but, you know, after you telling me you had a bit of a... So then Mark got in there and it went on and on and on and we went around another comic's house. So there was me and Sean and Mark and Simon. We went around another guy's house <laughs> Simon Munnery, we jumped out the wardrobe there. Then Simon got in the van with the wardrobe. And so there was now five of us in the van and the wardrobe. We went around another comedian's house, Jeff Green. We left it outside his flat. And then um, eventually it ended up on stage at the uh, at the uh, Comedy Cafe in East London. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, that was one of my fondest memories, the night of the wardrobe. I mean, it sounds like it's sort of like a, one of those old kind of Eric Sykes films, but it's sort of... It, it, and it sort of was. I'd watch that film. Hmm? You know those ones? Oh, of... yeah. I know. If that was a film, I'd watch it. I'd absolutely yeah. watch it. I'd watch it. Let's let's um, let's ask a plot twist question. I might come back to some more of those randoms because I do like going into those. Um, but this podcast is all about plot twists, and you've had a lot of milestones and accomplishments in in your career. But if there was a standout moment where your story catapulted or changed in such a way that you perhaps couldn't have foreseen. What might stand out to you? Um, well, I think there was a moment when I realised that my the perception of me as a, as a comic or as an artist was had gone up in terms of like recognition, in terms of you know the public, in terms of of, of fame. I guess that's the what that is the effectively what 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 it is. Uh, it was at Glastonbury, and it was at the comedy tent, and I'd been doing comedy for a while, and, you know, I'd done some stand-up tours and played a lot of gigs, but not in terms of, like, you know, national recognition or or real visibility in and in, in terms of the wider public. And you sort of, you know, in, when, you, when you're gigging, you're just, you're, what you're thinking about is the next gig. You think, well, uh, well that went well, or we'll do another gig, and... And they all seemed to be going well, and you know things were going okay. And I was doing a, and then I was 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 in Black Books. Black Books was on the TV, and the Buzzcocks. I was in the, you know, never mind the Buzzcocks, and that was being shown as well. So I think there was a kind of a a confluence of lots mm. of different things. So like the TV exposure, plus the fact that I've been doing a lot of gigs and built up a kind of a live following, an expectation, and there was a quite a lot of fans of my comedy at that point. And all of that came to a head and this gig. And it was the the comedy tent. And it's, you know, it holds, I, don't know, I suppose, a couple of thousand, maybe two, three thousand, pretty mm. more, maybe three or four thousand anyway. And it was packed and it was absolutely packed to the to the rafters and people were all around the outside of it. But not only that, there was about 200 people backstage who were trying to watch the show from the side and it was one of those moments where you think something's happened you know this is this is you know I've been to Glastonbury before and played the comedy tent and it was fine but it wasn't like this you know this mm. is something something else has happened and that was a moment where I just thought yeah this is uh you know there's been a definite kind of an appreciable increase in terms of numbers of coming to the show but also in terms of like your, I suppose, your status or your standing in terms of 
as an, an artist that people want to go and see. And that was a, it was quite, it was a little bit um, intimidating, I've got to say. It was a bit, uh, you know, it was a bit scary because you think, wow, this, is, this has got a bit out of hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't expect this. You know, I thought I thought they'd, I'd have a nice gig. I thought that would, you know, the tent might be reasonably full because, and it, and it obviously is. You know, a lot of the time, a lot of people just wander in there because they're stoned or you know it's raining. But <laughs> this was, you know, <laughs> this was something a bit different. Did you, uh, I suppose, preceding that, were you dreaming of that kind of level in terms of recognition and exposure? And was that something you always wanted to aspire to? Well, I think any artist does, really. I mean, that's all you want. To, you know, you just want you want an audience to grow an audience. You want to play to as many people as you can. You know, comedy is very much a um, it's an interactive medium. You know, it works because there's an audience. You know, you you need that. You need a, a response. The best gigs are the ones where there's a combination of that. There's a real a sort of alchemy which happens when you get a great crowd and you know you you work with the crowd and things happen and you get responses and and back and forth and that's what you want and and I'd had that in in, in on many occasions but on a smaller stage to a mm. smaller number of people and suddenly there was thousands of people and they were there predominantly to see me and that's what was you know it's intimidating when that happens because you think oh, right there's quite a lot of pressure now this something has ramped up the pressure that I wasn't expecting. And so, but you still have to kind of do the gig. And I think that was a big moment. I mean, I can still, you know, but I can talk about it now, like it was I, it was a very vivid memory. So that was definitely one. And another one was playing with the BBC Concert Orchestra when I wrote a show about the orchestra. I wrote this show, The Remarkable Guide to the Orchestra. And we performed it. I performed it with Anne Dudley was conducting and uh, I performed with them at the Albert Hall and that was another moment of well something this is not something I would have ever imagined doing and you know you have to rise to the occasion because that's another thing about I've learned over the years about performance is that you know you have to kind of get on top of something you have to really be ready be prepared for a gig because those are the times that you will remember, you know, mm. being able to recognize something that's great that's happening to you, but and then enjoying it at the same time. I think that's that's the great almost like that's one of the great lessons of of that I've learned about performances. Sometimes you, you don't quite know when the next gig might be, you don't know how your career might pan out, it might all end in a, in, in a second, you know. You might not be able to do this anymore. You have to just enjoy every moment. And it's like surfing, I guess. It's like surfing a wave. You know, the wave comes, we better catch it. You know, because you, know, you never know when the next one's coming. I was thinking when you were talking about the Glastonbury example, actually both of them, I think, upon reflection, there must be an enormous sense of satisfaction because reading other examples, like even years before you and Sean being at Edinburgh Fringe, and you're having to fight to get an audience and, you know, leaflets. And so to then fast forward a few years and be in that situation where, oh, my God, there's all these thousands of people. There's a community that are here for me. They must be like, oh, wow, I've earned that. That's that's really satisfying. Exactly. Because I think sometimes, you know, you see it with artists who become extremely well known very, very quickly. And it can be 
disconcerting and it can actually derail someone's career because they're not quite able to deal with it in the time that it's happened. And with with us, I mean, I always used to joke, you know, uh, my career, it's like a, it's like a meteor <laughs> that's been that's been dragged over land by a donkey. <laughs> it hasn't been this immediate you're thrust into the crucible of fame. We we really earned it. We worked it. You know, we worked many, many, many gigs. And those, as you say, those those gigs I did with Sean Locke uh, in Edinburgh. Well, we had no audience. I mean, one night we had no audience. We had there was one comedian in the audience. That was it. One person. It was Dominic Holland, the comedian, and uh, and he just said, "Oh, just you know, just do the show, lads." And we were like, "No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> It'd just be weird." Just doing it to you, that'd be just kind of slightly, slightly weird and a little bit creepy. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like a weird, you're like you're my private comedians. Um, <laughs> so we didn't do that. We said, we'll go to the bar, we'll just, you know, talk you through the highlights of it or beer or something. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it can be. I mean, I'm, you know, you know I, I remember... So there was someone talking about, oh, they didn't get an audience in their Edinburgh show this year, and oh, it was terrible. I was thinking, nobody got audiences in their shows. You know, you would go up there, you would spend weeks, months preparing for a show. You'd go and do it in little venues all around, in little art centres, pubs, anywhere, You and trying out this show. And, of course, you know, I mean, I'm my first ever stand-up show that I did, my solo show, I was doing it in this tiny little art centre, in this one of the small rooms, and there was like a handful of people there. And the show didn't go well, and I forgot bits of it, and it was kind of a bit of a disaster. And I was like, oh, God, you know, I'm taking this to Edinburgh. You know, this is a huge risk, and I'd invested a lot of my own money in it. And it's expensive. You know, you have to rent a venue. You have to pay for publicities, for posters. You have to pay for fringe registration, put ads in. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot of outlay, and with no real guarantee of anything at the end of it. I mean, that's the thing. That you, you know, you might, you might just end up hugely out of pocket, and no one's come to see the show. You've got no reviews, nothing, and that is the reality about doing it. But one of the great things about it is it's open to everyone. It's not an invitation-only festival. You know, you don't have to have established artist who's been invited to the festival. Anyone can go there with anything. And that's the great democratizing influence of it. You know, anyone can go. And that's great, but yes, it is a big risk. And You've got to love the game, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. You have to sort of take the risk, I think. You have to invest in yourself. You have to take a punt and say, look, you know what? If I'm serious about this and this as a career, if I really want to have a long career in, in doing comedy, you can't just rely on playing gigs you know in small venues and doing 20 minutes here and there you i mean that's fine you can do that but if you're really serious about it you want to try and push yourself you want to up the ante a little bit you want to see if you can write a longer show you want to see if you can write a bit of narrative into it you want to see if you can Maybe talk about subjects, things in more detail, make it about, you know, a, a story, tell a story, you know, really try and stretch what you've learned as a comic and put it into a longer show, a bit more ambitious. And there's definitely a risk to doing that, 
because someone, so, so many people are doing that. But there's also mm. a great reward if you can get it right because it can lead to all sorts of things. And as it turned out, that year, that show, my first solo show, I was getting, you know, five people in, you know, sort of seven, you know, like, oh, double figures, woohoo, you know. <laughs> um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who then I bet later married, uh, she was out the front handing out tickets to people, you know, just anyone, just free show, is a free show. And, of course, you end up with a lot of drunks, a lot of drunk. I mean... People and avowedly anti-English. There was like a bunch of Scottish people in there one night. Oh, Mr. Comedian. Oh, you're coming from London. You know, it's like you're getting all this abuse. And like, is this worth it? Is any of this worth it? And then, you know, then was a bit of word of mouth of the show and then a couple of good reviews. And that's that's like, you know, that's the gold dust. That's the kind of spice. Yeah. You know, that's the holy grail of the Edinburgh show. Just, uh, just that. A couple of decent reviews a bit of word of mouth and suddenly then the place started to fill up and then i then i looked out one night and it was full i mean it was it was packed and there were people from the telly i recognized in the audience you know like what's going on here you know this something's happened and then from that show then i got um a deal like a dvd deal uh, a tour management and then it felt like honestly i felt like that year was like me being in a car, like an old, you know, slightly battered old sort of Ford Fiesta, or Nissan Micra or something, like that, and you're just chugging along. And then suddenly, suddenly somebody put a massive engine in it, and then they got a breeze block and put the breeze block on the accelerator and slammed the door and right, off you go. And it's been like that ever since. Well, the hard work has paid off, right? I mean, that's... If you look... New tour coming up, Thought of Fire. I've been able to have a little sneak peek of some of it, and it is... I mean, I love it. I'm just wondering, like, the, sort of the creative process behind it. Are there certain times where you take yourself away and you do your preparation? How, how do you get to certain uh, material? Is there is there a certain sort of process that you go through? I'm thinking, like, the US National Anthem, and if you play it in a different key, suddenly it sounds a bit Russian you know, which I loved. But how, how do you get to that? Is that just experimenting and playing and thinking, oh, jotting that down, that could work? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, a, a lot of it is just sitting at a piano and playing, you know, things like that, like an, an anthem, playing a, a hymn, playing a piece of popular music, some classical music, playing some jazz, some ragtime, all the kind of different styles. And you know, just messing around with them, playing around with them, you know, seeing what other songs you can play in that style because that's become one of the my sort of trademarks in a way is this sort of the mm. putting together, mashing up different styles and seeing how music can flow from one style to another or what songs work in a different style or it, or it just hearing music in a different way, I think. This is something that I want to hear. You see, that's these are things I'd love to have seeing myself you know what I mean like I love to hear songs that are played in different styles because I think music has a great power to not just to unify people but it also it is extremely versatile it's a bit mercurial it can go in lots of different directions it can find its way into lots of things 
And that's something that really fascinates me. But And I'd love to hear that. When I hear other artists do it and I hear bands playing songs in different styles, you hear different artists covering different songs. I've always loved that because it just kind of reinforces what I think about music, that it's incredibly versatile and it just a good tune, a good piece of music will will be able to kind of navigate or to jump genres and still work and... So uh, I do a lot of that, and then I read a lot and trying to sort of feed the brain with lots of ideas. I read lots of non-fiction, lots of biography, lots of science, lots of all kinds of books and articles and trying to get, you know, feed the brain with ideas. And obviously, and obviously doing things as well, you know, traveling and, and the act of touring as well just generates a lot of material because you end up in lots of different countries, you find out lots of different things about different countries, you have experiences, strange things happen to you along the way. All of that is grist to the mill for the show. And uh, you know, and if you can hang that off, you know, a, a theme, I mean the loose theme of this show is very much celebrating the sort of eccentricity of people of humanity uh, in the face of our robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the, so we're, you know, it's very much like saying, well, yeah, okay, AI might take over our lives, but it it can't take the the, the stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'll never replicate that because it. Well, why would I do that? Ha That's where we get ya because we're random and eccentric and a bit daft, and that's what makes us human. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I was actually looking for tickets this morning in Bournemouth. So, because uh, I know you're doing Australia, New Zealand, UK, European tour. There's a lot of dates, which is amazing. Yep. Um, just one to, I'm just conscious of time, one to end on is a, is a plot twist person that we ask about. This might be a, a surprise entity in influencing you in some shape or form yep. that perhaps you wouldn't have foreseen. Is there someone that, that stands out? I imagine you've had quite a few in your career. Yes. I mean, uh... I've been lucky to work with some uh, great comics, uh, actors, writers, musicians, and uh, dancers. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, <laughs> I mean, and every every sort of different discipline, you th- there's been someone who's been, uh, you know, a great either encouragement or has said something that's resonated with me that's you know that's helped me down through the eight you know through the years you kind of you remember certain things like bob mills who's a you know who's a great stand-up comedian he said to me you know keep saying funny things that was his advice you know it's like and he just think well that's obvious isn't it surely for comedians but it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily obvious you know because sometimes you know, there's a temptation to think, well, you believe that you're sort of, you know, you're some kind of you know, intellectual or you're talking about more serious subjects. And you think, well, no, it has to be funny. It's all about the comedy element of it. And I think that's what I've taken from that. Um, but also, I think in terms of the work ethic, um, it's been a couple of two women who really have, have influenced me and certainly upped the ante in terms of... Um, of what my capability is and what I can do and my attitude to work. Well, was one was my music teacher, Linda Phipps, and she was a pianist and uh, an organist, and she was my music teacher, my piano teacher. She taught me 
A-level music. And she was a powerhouse of energy and enthusiasm. And she encouraged me to do things that I perhaps would never have done. And those kind of people are so important because you need people sometimes to give you that little bit of positive encouragement and a, as well as advice, but to to kind of say to someone, you, you're capable of more than you think you are. That is a great gift. That's an, an amazing thing to be able to do for someone. And she was a brilliant teacher. And, uh, and I always think her voice is always in my head whenever I go on stage, particularly in bigger gigs, more ambitious things, shows that require a lot of a lot of prep and a lot of a bit more complex and you know just big gigs generally you mm-hmm. know it's her voice saying you know you're capable of doing this she encouraged me to take part in a in a recital in my hometown when I grew up in Bath something I would never have done there had it not been for her so yeah she was a hugely um, influential person for me when I was in my formative years and then when I was making the orchestra show with Anne Dudley I mean Anne Dudley was you know, is a brilliant musician. She was in the Art of Noise. She's a, a composer, mu- movie, uh, you know, soundtrack composer, conductor, and working with her again was a, a real revelation because it was she was very very disciplined about how the process of creativity happens. You know, it's like when we're writing, we're going to record whatever. You know, we're going to make a demo. Like, of course, of course, you would. At the end of the day, you've written something. You record it, you make a demo of it, you listen back to it, and then you work on it. And, and I, of course, it was like such a simple thing, but I just thought, oh, yeah, you know, you have, to, you have to be more disciplined about this process. You have to, if you're writing, if you're serious about it, you have to do that. And so that was, again, working with her over, over many weeks and months when we were getting that show together was, again, another revelation. You know, not just to to be creative and not just to you know to try and think up ideas and to see where those ideas are going but to be disciplined and ordered about how you document that process along the way so that you know uh it it, it kind of you know it, the, the prep is everything i think that's the thing you, you have to be prepared for something you have to kind of constantly prepare and i'd say that would be the same with the dancing i mean you know you have to prepare you have to like anything like that was that's why i suppose you know i i ended up doing well because i threw myself into it and prepared and that's the key that's the key in you know it seems like almost counterintuitive in a way because performance is almost seen as like a some sort of spontaneous bit of spark that you know that just suddenly you're infused by the muse but it's not there's a lot of hard work and prep and rehearsal mm. that goes into it I was going to say, it's sort of universal, isn't it? There's an element where it's transferable. You know, you can take those learnings and apply that anything. There's especially for somebody like yourself that is very creative and does a multitude of different things. That's right. I think so. I, I definitely think so. Bill, I've, I've loved having you on. There's so many other things I could, I could talk to you about. There's, uh, yeah, so, so much. But um, All right. we've run out of time. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good well, luck. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. With, uh, or Thought of Fire hopefully I'll see you down in Bournemouth that'd be pretty cool absolutely amazing thank you so much Bill cheers
there we have it. The brilliant Bill Bailey. Big thank you, Tim. Even bigger thank you, because clearly he'd had a great night the night before and wasn't feeling 100%, so it is much appreciated. So many things to take away from that interview. He's such a interesting man, first and foremost. The Glastonbury story was particularly interesting. The plot twist where I guess it was that combination and recognition of the hard work that preceded it and suddenly being in that environment and thinking, wow, I'm in this tent, thousands of people are watching and they're here for me and this is what I've built over time. And isn't it astonishing? Like Bill Bailey and Sean Locke, no one came to see them. Astonishing to think of when you think of the heights they would go on to. And talking of Sean Locke, the night of the wardrobe, what an amazing story. And, you know, maybe they'd have to exaggerate certain elements, but I think that could make a great film and I would certainly get a ticket. We obviously spoke about his tour, Thoughtify, and the creative processes that go on behind the scene. I, I genuinely find it fascinating how different comedians have these different approaches in how they source their material and, and deliver it. There are not many tickets left in the UK when Bill returns next year, but there are some out there. So do go and have a look wherever you get your tickets. You may be able to get one. And I can tell you from seeing some previews, it would be worth it. And if you want more Bill Bailey, I mentioned Master Crafters and In the Long Run. Both are on Sky and now available to stream. Do go and check those out. And what else can I say? A big thank you to Bill for coming on Plot Twist. And next week, I will be back with British acting sensation Papa Essidu. He's going to be talking about Series 2 of The Lazarus Project, all about time travel, a very, very interesting conversation. And, of course, I'll ask him a plot twist question. So until then, ciao, guys. Ciao, guys.